hello and good day to all of you for joining us for today's webinar. Uh, my name is Charlotte Hebebrand. I'm the Director of Communications and Outreach at uh, IFPRI. And it's my pleasure to moderate today's session. We're going to hear some very important research findings of a collaborative research project carried out by ETH and IFPRI on enhancing biodiversity and resilience in intensive, in intensive farming systems, a very important and timely topic. We have a full program, so let me turn straight away to some welcoming remarks and a project overview from the lead researchers in the two institutions. Uh, Wei Zhang, who serves as Senior Research Fellow at IFPRI, and she will turn over then to um, Jabouri Hazul, Chair of Ecosystem Management at ETH. Over to you, Wei. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Um, the, the report by the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services named land use, uh, deforestation, fragmentation, and uh, degradation as the number one root cause of terrestrial biodiversity decline. And agriculture is the number, uh, is one of the major drivers behind. On the other hand, agriculture benefits from biodiversity and the ecosystem services it underlines, such as pollination, natural pest control, and soil fertility. One way to uh, address biodiversity loss is to shift towards production approaches um, that um, allow maintaining and supporting biodiversity. Since last May, um, the project Enhancing Biodiversity and Resilience in Crop Production has worked to help lay the groundwork for a science-based approach to rethinking agriculture and biodiversity and improving agricultural systems to the benefits of farmers, consumers, and the environment. This event marks the launch of the report. Uh, I'm delighted to um, uh, pass it on to uh, my co-PI, Professor Jabri Hazu, uh, to give an overview of the project. Thanks. Thank you, Wei. Um, so uh, in recognition of the change in agricultural policy, particularly across the EU, but also globally, and the need to rethink how agriculture is done, particularly in the context of climate change and biodiversity loss, uh, Bayer put out a call for proposals um, over a year ago now uh, to explore and synthesize the literature and the science evidence base uh, on how some uh, habitat measures can be done in a manner to improve soil uh, productivity and, and, and soil health uh, and thereby enhance uh, biodiversity both on the farm, in the soil and in the wider landscape and ultimately to build resilience in these systems. So uh, as a result of that call, uh, IFPRI and ETH Zurich, my own university, uh, got together and, and pooled a, uh, a consortium of collaborators across four countries, France, Germany, uh, United States, and Brazil, to really respond to this, uh, this demand for synthesis of the evidence. Over the last uh, year and a half, we've been working on this, and, and we've really only scratched the surface. Uh, there's so much information and so many different approaches we can take. But essentially, the project has taken uh, five different uh, steps towards this goal. Firstly, we've been engaging directly with farmers to get a sense of their understanding, their perspective about what could be done and the opportunities, but also some of the challenges and constraints for delivering uh, both biodiversity and resilience through uh, new ways of farming. Um, 
And I should add that these approaches are very much an intensive farming system. So we're thinking of uh, many of the cereal and, and soy crops that are grown around the world and maize. Uh, secondly, uh, our colleagues at the University of Maryland uh, have been developing an assessment framework for really exploring ways in which we can monitor and, and capture information both on the farm and in the landscape to inform future, um, uh, future management strategies. We've also undertaken here at ETH Zurich, um, and you'll we'll hear a lot about this from, from Mariam, um, the variety of different measures that can be taken to uh, support um, better pest control services, to support improved nutrient cycling processes, and to build that resilience, including cover cropping and intercropping and, and, and similar methods. Um, Sergey, also working here at uh, ETH Zurich, has been looking at some of the farmer responses and concerns about some of the incentive methods and support structures uh, and approaches, uh, policy approaches to implementing some of these uh, management um, and supporting some of these management interventions. Uh, and no doubt we'll hear from him in a, in a few minutes as well. Um, also, there's been a, a real push to understand some of the spatial dimensions of uh, uh, of agricultural production. Where can these cereal and soy and maize crops be grown most appropriately, but particularly in the context of some of the protected areas and sensitive areas? What is the degree of overlap and what is the competition? Now, this project is obviously not just IFPRI and ETH. It, it's, there's many contributors to this. In Brazil, it's, a lot of the work has been led by the University of Sao Paulo. Um, in Germany, the Leibniz, Institute, the Leibniz Center for Agriculture and Landscape Research uh, has been very prominent. Um, in France, INRA has been an important partner, and the United States, uh, both the University of Maryland that I mentioned earlier, but also the University, the State um, University in Iowa, Iowa State University, I should say, um, has been absolutely central to a lot of the work that we've been doing. And we're going to be hearing a, a lot from the different partners across the different um, uh, work packages that engaged in this project. I'll finish with there, and I'll hand over back to you, Wei. Excellent. Thank you so much, Wei and Jaguri, for that overview. Um, and we are keen to hear from all of you. Please do uh, put your questions into the chat, and we'll be moving towards a Q&A session after all the speakers have spoken. So we look forward to your lively engagement. Um, thanks, Jaguri, for laying out the, the breadth of this uh, project and the number of uh, partners. We're now going to hear from four researchers involved in this work. And, and I say that's just a, a, a one part of the work. Obviously, it's a lot bigger than that. So we encourage all of you to look at the work in totality. Um, we're starting with a discussion here by Mariam Yusefi Bardakskan, also from ETH. And she will talk to us about some of the findings that you had on practices and technologies. Over to you, Mariam. Hello everybody, thank you. Um, I'm very honored uh, that I present some of the more important um, aspects and uh, output of World Packer 3, practice and technology. Uh, World Packer 3 was mostly focused on the uh, three main uh, research focus. First of all, um, we uh, synthesized the existing 
uh, literature uh, re regarding the effect of cover cropping on soil health and ecosystem services. We identified factors influencing the effectiveness of uh, cover cropping, as uh, you can see that uh, diagram. Uh, farm practices such as uh, irrigation technology system or tillage system, planting and termination season, climate zone and soil properties, uh, cover, cover crop and main crop species, cover crop biomasses, and residue management. The results of the synthesizing of the uh, 47 papers uh, focusing on the effect, comparing the effect of uh, cover cropping, uh, sorry, the, that compared cover cropping compared to uh, uh, cover cropping and um, it shows that the opportunities of uh, cover cropping are enhancement soil biodiversity and nutrient cycle, runoff and uh, nitrogen leaching prevention, uh, soil uh, physical properties and carbon sequestration, and pest and weed uh, suppression. And also there are two challenges uh, at the effect of cover cropping that are lower uh, crop yields and uh, lower uh, soil water prevention. Uh, the second uh, research focus uh, was a comparative meta-analysis on the effect of intercropping and agri-environmental schemes, including hedgerow, um, grassy margin, and flower strip on, the, on biological pest control with a focus on uh, wheat, so, uh, wheat, maize, and soybean. Uh, the core uh, result shows that intercropping was effective in uh, overall is suppressing herbivores and enhancing predators of uh, pest species. Uh, row intercropping allowed for effective uh, pest management compared to strip intercropping. And the abundance of uh, predators increased in field, um, in wheat field, adjacent to flower strips, which uh, declined beyond uh, five meters from uh, flower strips. Uh, and the third uh, research focus of World Packer 3 was the, the application of technology in cereal uh, crop production. Uh, we, find, we found four, uh, five applications uh, that are pests and disease control, irrigation control and management, soil health management, crop growth, and decision making, and uh, heavy metal assessment. As a very short output, uh, as you see in this uh, chart, that shows the techniques and technology for data processing in the smart farming that we identified uh, through um, papers that we have reviewed, uh, that artificial intelligence and uh, cloud computing are the most important technologies that have been used for uh, cereal production. And as a high, uh, board package three highlights that well-designed and multifunctional cover crop implementation provides substantially more regulating and supporting system services than more crop. Um, we can use automated uh, irrigation control system to, um, to overcome the 
the drawbacks of uh, cover cropping. And also uh, we uh, compared the literature review result with the farmer's opinion uh, resulted from the interviews that uh, we found that there are well aligned speci specifically um, for the US um, farmers. And as a gap, we, um, there have been relatively few uh, field experiments designed to investigate cover crop um, outcome in Germany and France. Thanks for that. Thank you so much, Mariam, for that overview of the, the review you did on, on cover crops, intercropping, and, and some of the technolo technological options. Um, we're now moving to the world of policy. Um, we have with us Sergei Schaub, um, who's a postdoctoral researcher at Agroscope and ETH Zurich. Uh, who will speak to us about the work that was done on the, the various factors that affect farmers' participation in agri-environmental agri schemes or their potential participation. Over to you, Sergey. Hello. Do you see my screen? Yes. Perfect. Um, so hello, everyone. I'm very happy to be here to present our research project uh, on factors affecting farmers' participation in agri-environmental schemes. This is work uh, led by Robert Finger, Jabouri Gasul, and myself. But we heard before already why we talk about these issues. We talk about them because we have, uh, we experience in dramatic degradation of our ecosystems, including our agricultural ecosystems and a huge biodiversity loss. And as response to that, public and private entities introduce agri-environmental schemes to incentivize the adoption of environmentally friendly practices by farmers. Now, one thing is really important to know what works in the field and what doesn't, as also shown by Mariam. But on the other side, we really need to understand how we can encourage farmers to participate in those schemes and to adopt these environmentally friendly practices. And from the literature, we know more or less that behavioral factors can play a role, also opportunity costs can play a role in this participation decision. However, there is not really an overview, uh, a state-of-the-art overview, so to say. So this is why we follow up on this question, what are the behavioral factors and opportunity costs affecting farmers' participation in environmental schemes? But what are now these behavioral factors and opportunity costs I'm speaking about? So first, behavioral factors stemming from human behavior. They might be due to your personality. They might be due to the situation or a re reaction to the environment, for example, to other farmers. On the other side, we have opportunity costs, and this is what a farmer gives up to do a certain practice compared to an alternative one. For example, when a farmer reduces fertilizer input, um, this causes opportunity costs. So these are the two things we want to look at. But how did we do it? Um, we looked at a, a lot of papers, we produced tables and we produced figures and more tables and more figures. But in a quint ascent, we did a systematic review of the existing literature with a focus on Australia, Europe and North America and on specialized and mixed arable farms. And this led then to us looking at 83, picture, uh, 83 papers and over 700 factors that we summarized within our work project. All right, so what did we find now? So first of all, and I think that's very important to understand for policymakers, but also for public entities, is that many relationships between behavioral factors and opportunity costs with participation in schemes, it's not so straightforward. They're often ambiguous. 
and that it might depend on a lot of different factors. And they're often less clear than is frequently communicated. One example here are environmental attitudes. So this not the, the relationship to participation in schemes is actually much more uh, way way less clear than often communicated as I said. So this leads us starting to conclude that we really need to also look at heterogeneous treatment effects. So really think about the setting and how different aspects like opportunity costs and behavioral factors might interact. And I think this really needs to be considered in policy designs and when pharma, uh, companies want to incentivize farmers, really think about the setting and what are the components interacting here. But there are a set of rather universal relationships, which are quite clear for behavioral factors. This is, for example, receiving advice, peer relationships, so the relationship to other farmers, and a positive attitude towards schemes. And I think that's quite interesting because they're very easy to use. For example, receiving advice um, can be very easily leveraged by telling farmers, uh, like or informing farmers, rather, about what practices to use, when to apply, how to apply, make this process as easy as possible and inform and um, transfer knowledge. And for opportunity costs, we have market condition and scheme design, which is rather straightforward. For example, easier and more flexible schemes are more, more likely to be taken up by farmers. However, here a word of caution. So if you just make it too flexible and too easy, um, the results for the environment and for biodiversity might be not so important. Uh, so uh, well perceived as we want them. So we really need to think here about these trade-offs. So as I said already, I hope that companies and policymakers will take up this information about these more ambiguous relationships and those which are more clear when incentivizing farmers. And before I end my talk today, I also want to highlight an additional research we did, which were looking at indicators for result-based payments. So these result-based payments are payments when farmers actually receive money for achieved outcomes, so for measured outcomes and not for doing certain actions. Uh, and we did an overview a bit about this as well. What we find very briefly summarized because I'm running out of time here is that they are mostly found in grasslands. Indicators are quite simple. They are very effective pathways to advance these indicators to be possibly more effective for conserving and restoring biodiversity. Within the EU, there are a bunch of new uh, result-based payments planned. I hope they use the right indicators. And there are a bunch of new technologies which can be used, such as smartphone apps, to leverage the measurement of indicators. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sergey. Sorry to rush you through that uh, very interesting presentation. And, and I think you put your finger on the key issue here, right? The farmers need simple designs that are easy to actually implement. And yet we know that uh, the topic is complicated and to actually demonstrate that the environmental benefits are being accrued is, is not so straightforward. So um, our next speaker is Jay Guo, who's uh, the senior GIS coordinator here at IFPRI. And he will speak to us about the spatial distribution of intensive soy, maize, and wheat production systems in, in the four countries that were looked at. Over to you, uh, Jay. Hello. Um, can you see my screen? Yes, please start. Great. So I would I will shift gear and talking about the spatial distributions of intensive uh, soybean, maize, and wheat production system using spatial data, and this work was led by Wei Zhang, Yuliang, 
and myself uh, from IFRI. And uh, first of all, I think in biodiversity and environmental studies and uh, land cover and then land use changes are important drivers for deforestation, agricultural intensives, and the land degradation, for, for, for example. And uh, we will focus on agricultural intensification for this purpose. And this study is uh, aimed to identify where and how and to what extent the key crops and also the cropland are allocated and in those focus countries and those four focus countries. And we will do this spatial analysis and pattern uh, analysis in three perspectives. And one is at the cropland level. And the other one is uh, mapping the cropland density distributions with the protected area from the IUCN. The third one is uh, we deep dive into the, the, the single crops to see how these single crops diffusion are different from each other and among the countries. And uh, we did an explorer of the existing data sets. And um, since we are relies on public available data sets, but also we want to use the most recent data sets at a higher space resolution because we want them eventually uh, to be able to link with uh, landscape studies from other work packages. And uh, we review a few uh, products for uh, cropland and land covers. And eventually we, we use uh, 10 meter E3 uh, 2020 land cover data because they are more recent and have very high spatial resolution. Similarly, for crop types, they are a little more challenging uh, to, to get the uh, high uh, reliable uh, remote sensing data. So we pick the European uh, crop data from JRC in 2020 and also the USA and uh, Brazil. Most of the data are below uh, like 30 meters or 10 meters. And uh, because we always want to have a higher spatial resolution. And for the protected area, because we are looking at the study at the micro level at a, a country level. So we use IUCN data, uh, protected data um, from IUCN. And here's some main results for, so we, if you look at the uh, cropland density, how they distribute among those countries. So France and Germany, they are more evenly distributed and they are some, they have some clusters, but they also, um, it's most of the areas uh, are suitable for cropland uh, uh, agricultural production has been occupied. And on the other hand, if you look at the um, Brazil and US, the cropland densities are spatially clustering and, and there are more in US is concentrated in the corn belts and, uh, and in, the, in the Brazil is more in the Southern area. And uh, so we overlay this with a protect area and we find out like in Europe and France and Germany, the protected area are more, you know, um, mixed with the cropland uh, areas. So they are uh, mixed together and uh, there are no really high clusters of the protected area. And, uh, and, but when we look at uh, Brazil, especially, and also US, we see like the separation and the, the hotspot of the protected area compared to the cropland area, they are highly dispersed. And uh, so especially the patterns are quite unique from country to countries. And furthermore, we actually dive into the single crop. We start with the maize and uh, we, we demonstrate where are the hotspot of the maize uh, cultivated area in different countries here. I just, show, I just want to show uh, France and the US. And in France, you can see clearly the high density area of maize productions compared to uh, maize. And uh, 
Similarly, we did the wheat productions and you can see, I will go back and forth, you can see clearly the patterns are so uh, very different and within the crops. And also the soybean, the similar thing happens. And also we put these three crops together to see, okay, where the crop, the major crop productions compared to other things. And we can see clearly there are spatial patterns that are unique from each countries. And to summarize, there's a strong spatial heterogeneities in distribution of cropland and the individual crops. And also each country have their unique hotspot and spatial patterns. And this assessment will be complemented with uh, other objectives and for example, potential for connecting existing habitats uh, from the landscape studies. More importantly, I think we compile a huge amount of data sets, this is gigabytes of data sets, and we spend quite a lot, a lot of time to process and harmonize them. So we put this in public domain, so those Dropbox um, folders, and uh, at least here, so and it could be future use for the, uh, for the data set. I'll stop here, thanks. Excellent, thank you so much. Really fascinating results from that uh, uh, spatial distribution and to see the differences between Europe and, and, and the US, or France and Germany and the US and Brazil, but also then some differences among all the countries. So very, very interesting. And I'm sure that will be very helpful as, as the work is uh, being pursued on, uh, on this project or similar topics. Um, so last but not least, um, Jin Zhang is with us. Uh, she is an associate professor at the University of Maryland Center for Environmental Science. And she has been working in this project on co-developing a framework and indicators for assessing the performance of biodiversity enhancing practices. Over to you, Jin. Thank you, Charlotte. Uh, could you see my screen? Yes. Um, good, thank you. Um, so uh, thank you, Charlotte, for the introduction. Um, and uh, it's my great pleasure to share the, some of the major work uh, for, for this uh, project on behalf of my colleagues, Dr. Uh, Adam Kamarek uh, from University of Queensland and Dr. Wei Zhang from IFPRE and uh, Dr. Michael Castellano from uh, our state. Um, so earlier, my colleagues, uh, and also uh, it, it's, a, it's work uh, involved feedbacks from many other colleagues uh, in this project. So uh, earlier, my colleagues has uh, talked about the, some of the practices and technologies that has been considered as enhancing biodiversity and discussed uh, uh, what enabled farmers may um, implement those um, practices. Um, so there are some remaining questions such as uh, to what extent uh, those uh, practices may help to enhance the biodiversity and also what other uh, co-benefits of those um, practices could be used to overcome some of the barriers for implementing those uh, practices. So in order to answer those questions, uh, we really need to have a framework to assess the impact of those biodiversity enhancing practices. Um, so um, given that goal, uh, building on our experience in developing a sustainable agriculture metrics for evaluating agriculture practice on a national scale for countries around the world, we have been developing this um, assessment framework uh, uh, for agriculture practices with uh, extensive literature review and uh, stakeholder engagement. 
So the, the, uh, the, the framework that I'm talking about uh, is assessing the impact of biodiversity enhancing practice on the environment, social, and economic dimensions. And it also should consider the impact not only on farm, but also beyond farm. So based on the framework, we have identified several major impacts that need to be assessed, noted with the black color text here. And we think it's particularly important to consider the uh, impact on biodiversity on several spatial scales, because uh, a given agricultural practice does not only affect the diversity of soil microbes, um, plants and animals on farm, uh, but also have a significant impact on the landscape connectivities and biodiversity for the region. It may also influence the uh, biodiversity in the distanced world through the emission of greenhouse gas in, um, and climate change, uh, and also affect um, afforestation or deforestation through the global supply chain. So, um, so based on this overall framework, we have uh, identified a list of indicators through the literature review and uh, provide a tentative report card using cover crop as example. And then with those uh, initial uh, work, we conducted a, a stakeholder workshop in our state last month to review the design of the framework indicator uh, and the report card. And more specifically, we use the cover crop as example and discuss some of the major costs and benefits of implementing cover crop practice on farm and on the regional scales. Um, and further discuss or identify some recommendations for policies and other actions in order to enable the uh, further implication, uh, implementation of the cover crop practice. Um, so here's the example of the report card for cover crop um, and small text here are, indi um, are indicators that could be used to measure the major impacts. And those in indicators were uh, color coded um, uh, based on the literature with green color uh, indicates uh, implementing the cover crop practice may lead to a positive change, while red indicates a negative change. A yellow color indicates the direction is, uh, is uh, ambiguous or um, very context dependent. So the as you see, the literature find a, a strong negative impact on cost and um, energy consumptions, uh, but have a large benefits for the environment on both uh, farm and regional scales. So the picture on the left shows the stakeholder feedbacks and overall, uh, most stakeholders consider the uh, framework covers the major impacts and uh, their assessment uh, of the impacts also uh, more or less align with uh, what we found in the literature, but with some uh, major difference uh, in, uh, including, their, um, uh, for example, the, they consider the strong negative impact potentially on the farm uh, productivity and profit and particularly on the risk. So based on the discussion, many rich uh, recommendations has been provided, uh, but based, um, because of time constraint, uh, I would um, um, not be able to share it, but uh, overall, I hope that you can see that there are still more, a lot more need to be done or could be done through the co-developing this pro, uh, assessment framework. And I, sh I hope this has shown the certain values of the 
co-development of this framework in uh, assessing the actual impact of the practice, enable the conversation among the stakeholder and uh, informing the regional policy and actions. So with that, I would like to thank all my collaborators and also thank you for your attention. Thank you very much and really fascinating work and, and important that you look at the economic, um, environmental and social uh, uh, indicators here as well. So I hope all of this will also get taken forward. Just, just very interesting work. So uh, the audience, you've now heard uh, some of the highlights that have come out of this um, review project. So now we're, we're going to um, have a number of um, speakers that will ask so provide some reactions to to what we've heard um we're going to hear from the perspective of farmers the policy community um, again the research community as well as the private sector so we're going to uh, kick off uh, with Wei Zhang again um Wei you participated in some of these uh farmer interviews could you just give us some of the highlights? What were some of the areas of consensus and, and where perhaps were there differences um, among farmers from these different countries? Thank you very much, Charlotte. Yes, we conducted farmer interviews to complement these scientific review and synthesis studies. And Adina Kunz um, and I worked closely with the country teams. So I invite them to also chime in during the panel and the Q&A. Um, uh, Joanna, if you could um, put on my second slide, actually. Uh, thank you. And, and the intention of this, um, these interviews really is to help the project team members to gain insight into the motivations that influence farmers' adoption of practices and the existing barriers that uh, may limit their ability to embrace uh, adoption. And uh, the information can help improve our understanding about the kind of strategies needed to, to help encourage farmers to use uh, biodiversity enhancing practices, support their implementation and mitigate any limitations they may um, be challenged with or cause uh, discouragement. Uh, uh, next slide, please. So I, I just also mention a caveat, um, the, the generalization of the results, uh, however, is limited uh, by the fact that we didn't have a, um, a random representative sample of farmer respondents. Um, yeah, so um, the map shows some high level locations of the farmers where the interviews were conducted. So we do have four project notes posted on IFPRI website that have more detailed description of the results. Um, the, those links are available on the event page. Let me just give you some highlight of the interview findings. So in, in Brazil, um, we interviewed 16 farmers. Uh, most farmers mentioned there's no significant risk involved in adoption, um, but a few of them mentioned uh, a risk in the unpredictable nature of uh, some biodiversity enhancing practices. And they were concerned it could uh, negatively impact crop production or would be an um, investment that would not result in positive return. Some of the specific costs that farmers mentioned uh, were um, getting alternatives to chemical inputs, um, a waste management, uh, and, and um, the, the access to professionals to assess with um, some um, practices and technical side. But overall, there's um, a sentiment that the costs seem to be 
uh, reasonable. And factors that motivated farmers to adopt include maintaining or preserving water resources and a desire to improve soil quality and environmental considerations. Um, farmers, um, uh, you know, when they make decisions about particip participating in policies and programs, they consider uh, initial investment costs, financial assistance offered by the government, um, and grace period and risks. And they suggested some changes, uh, including more financial incentives, and they will also like to see greater disclosure, articulation, and public um, awareness raising about the program details. Uh, we interviewed 17 farmers in France. Uh, cost was the biggest limitation they faced in implementing uh, practices. Um, mo many farmers were concerned about the surface area they would lose by adopting practices and the potential risks they would face in their production outputs, the expensive costs of necessary um, uh, equipment and um, uh, uh, machines. Uh, one of the biggest cost concerns uh, is, is to acquire the required tools and equipment for the new practices. Uh, some popular motivation sources farmers mentioned were soil health and hunting. A lot of the farmers in France were hunters. So there was a strong desire to see um, wildlife presence on their land. There's also generational influence in farmers' motivations uh, for adoption. Uh, farmers have both positive and negative views on the public policies, in particular the agri-environmental programs that Sergey uh, was talking about. Um, they mentioned some opportunities in participating in these programs in terms of sharing information with farmers, networking, experimenting with different practices and receiving guidance from uh, professionals and also support, um, uh, financial support. Yes, but they also- sorry. sorry, Wei, I think we need to move on. And um, these are really yeah. interesting. Uh, can I ask you to put the link to the findings in the chat um, since the results are up on the website? I think um, that would be great. And then let's move on now, if you don't mind, to hear from a, 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 an actual farmer. Um, welcome to, to our discussion today, uh, Adrian Ivory. He's the manager of Strathcyslia Farms in Blair Gowrie, Scotland. And um, Adrian, I assume you would want to see ways uh, interviews uh, encompass more farmers than, than uh, the, the ones that we've been able to do as part of this project. But, but talk to us today from your perspective. Um, you're obviously uh, farming in the UK, but you're still somehow tied to EU farm uh, forums. What are your key reactions on the research findings um, here? and and? Again, in particular, from a, from a farmer's perspective, over to you. Yeah, thank you, Charlotte. I, I think the findings are really interesting. And as a farmer, soil health is something that is essential uh, for to maintain my business, to keep me uh, profitable. I suppose the the key messages I would come through this is that uh, farming, like any other business, uh, to remain sustainable needs to be profitable. And in order for me to invest heavily in this tech uh, and machinery that's going to be required, I want to see that it's proven in the field. And when I talk about it being proven, we're not talking about a, a small plot size. 
we're talking about large field scale sizes so that we can see all the positives along with the negatives. I, I, I stress that it's really important that we see negatives as well as positives so that we can all learn. The other thing that uh, I think is crucial in everything at a farmer level is the anacronym that I use at home, KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. If things are made too complicated or too onerous, they just will not be taken up and no one will look at them. And the final point I would make is that when people are looking into new varieties, new technologies and everything like that, please don't forget about the customer that the farmer is selling it into. In my circumstances, it's into the whiskey industry, the bread making industry or the gin uh, the gin mate alcohol industry essentially or, or the livestock feed industry if our customers do not want to buy that product we won't grow it so i think those those would be my key things for the moment charlotte okay thanks very much adrian very straightforward points um, some of them have already uh, uh, come up before in this discussion so now we uh, want to look at these topics from the policy perspective, and we're very pleased that Fernando Sampaio is with us. He's the director of the PCI Institute in Brazil. Um, Fernando, how can policymakers, in this case, obviously Brazilian policymakers, best support farmers' efforts to enhance biodiversity and resilience? Hi, Charlotte. Well, thanks for the for the invitation. I, I have some slides to share, if you don't mind. Uh, someone should be sharing. But, you know, I, I'm speaking on behalf of the Mato Grosso state government in Brazil. And this is the, the Mato Grosso is the, the largest uh, agriculture commodity producer in Brazil. And from the government perspective, the idea is to work on land use efficiency. It means that we can produce a lot more uh, and conserve the biodiversity that we have and at the same time mitigating climate change. Uh, uh, so the, what Mato Grosso put in practice, and this is the PCI strategy, produce, conserve, include this, you know, uh, 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 first of all, it's a commitment of the state to uh, produce, but at the same time, conserve biodiversity. But it's also a public-private partnership. We can go to the next slides, please. Um, so the idea is that, you know, not a single stakeholder can solve the challenges that we have of food security, conserving biodiversity, and uh, mitigating climate change. So not governments alone cannot do that. Um, the farmers alone cannot do that, and the, the private sector, the companies cannot do that, nor the civil society. We have to put together all these efforts, and the, the PCI is what we call now a jurisdictional sustainability initiative. And the idea is that we can have a transition on the territory of this jurisdiction of Mato Grosso, uh, and to do that, we need the government acting. So we are putting in practice a mix of public policies that can support farmers. First of all, the, our main priority is to stop deforestation on the state, the illegal deforestation that accounts for the most part of the deforestation. 
and to implement the forest, the Brazilian forest code. It's a kind of policy that makes the farmers also responsible for conservation of forests inside their property. Um, so we have this mix of public policies. We have the engagement of companies and farmers uh, on these consensual issues that we have to provide more technical assistance and support for uh, uh, degradation, uh, you know, to improve uh, lands that are degraded. But we also need investments from different sources to support this transition. Next one, please. So in terms of public policies, we have different agencies inside the Mato Grosso government uh, working on these policies to control deforestation, uh, to create incentives using the, the, the carbon from reduced deforestation, supporting smallholders, but also uh, low carbon agriculture policy uh, for the state. So the idea is that we can increase production, but at the same time, uh, reduce emissions and conserve more biodiversity. So these are all the government agencies involved in the DCI. Next one. And on the other hand, we have, we are building a lot of different partnerships with uh, uh, finances and donors and uh, structuring the possibility of creating a flow of investments to Mato Grosso because everything that we are talking about demands investments. Um, uh, so the farmers to transform degraded land, more productive land, uh, to restore forests, to restore degraded pastures, um, you know, to give technical assistance for smallholders. Everything demands investments. And now we have a good idea what are this gap of investments. We are building the partnerships and the programs to drive these investments to the jurisdiction uh, because we believe that there is a layer of farmers that can you know, invest themselves on this kind of production. They have access to credit, but there is a layer of farmers that they're just not bankable or the risk is too high. So how can we create solutions and uh, investment models that will make possible this transition that we are talking about. So this is also part of the PCI job is to implement this solution, this investment solutions for the farmers. Next one, please. Please just wrap up, as, uh, Fernando. Yeah, just as an example in a, in a productive territory in Mato Grosso, this is the municipality of Sorizo is the main soybean producer. So we are putting together the public investments, uh, the private partners, and the local actors to work on the transformation of this territory. So this is just one example. Thanks, Charlie. Excellent. Thank you, Fernando. Really interesting update from uh, from Mato Grosso. Let's let's turn back to Sergey, um, who spoke earlier, of course. Um, since you have worked so much on agri-environmental schemes, Sergey, do you have additional thoughts on, on policy. Um, what is the situation here in Europe? Yeah, thank you, Cheryl, for this question. And I'm very happy, obviously, to share my thoughts. So first of all, uh, I think it's very important to acknowledge the, the work farmers do in Europe, but also uh, globally. Uh, I think this should be not um, be sidelined or anyway. Uh, but 
still we have the current trajectories of this that we have a degrading environment that we have biodiversity which is lost which is not sustainable in the long run and therefore we really need to ramp up our efforts and need to also be a bit ambitious in our goals and how we set our goals um, and this means a couple of things and always very important to me is not to leave farmers alone but actually use policies use schemes in order to support them integrate as adrian already had, uh, pressed before also different uh, actors along the supply chain uh, i think that's very important to have like then a sustainable system both for our environment and also for farmers but i want to stress three things now when it comes really to policies in europe especially and schemes so first is that we really need to focus on those practices which work to protect our environment, to protect our biodiversity. And this requires evidence-based policies, uh, which again um, requires a science. And this is, I think, a very good example today here where many uh, scientific views come into together and also a lot of knowledge was summarized. I think this is a lot of valuable information for policymakers to base the policies up on those. My second point is really to enrich also a bit the polit uh, political portfolio, this environmental uh, schemes, meaning to think about larger uh, spatial scales, not only one farm, but maybe think about a landscape scale, because this is where biodiversity actually matters. We heard before that uh, we want to have wildlife back. They're not only happening on one farm, but this needs collaboration across um, space. And I think the Netherlands has a good example here where they uh, have schemes in place where they ask farmers to collaborate and actually bring um, consolidated action into place. I think we need more of those uh, and these need to be ambitious. And then also close to my heart is result-based payments uh, for biodiversity. We have them so far mostly in Switzerland, a uh, few in Ireland and also in, in Germany. Uh, we need more of those. Uh, where farmers are paid based on results they achieve because this makes them also more flexible. I think this is also something which came from me through what Adrian said before, like sometimes things get very restrictive and they're not able to work anymore because they're forced to do it one or the other way. But result-based payments actually allows farmers to use the tools they think are best suited to achieve certain goals. Um, and that last but not least, bring farmers on board. And I think I, I don't want to talk about too long about this, uh, I mentioned many points before in my presentation earlier, how we can do this, think about the behavioral factors that actually matter for bringing farmers on board and bring, thinking about the opportunity costs which matter. Uh, and this needs to then become altogether in uh, agri-environmental policies, hopefully. Thanks. Excellent, Sergey, um, for that. Uh, thanks for that overview of, of the discussion in, in Europe on this. Um, we have a question in the chat, which is relevant to our next speaker. So Gideon Kruzman is asking, what are the lessons learned from this analysis for the resource poor in low and middle income countries? Of course, a, a, a good question, given that this work focused on three high income countries and one middle income country. Um, so we're really pleased to have with us Celine Termota. She's the regional lead for Africa. Um, of the Food, Environment, and Consumer Behavior Research Group at the Alliance of Biodiversity International and SEAT. Um, Celine, could you speak to us on, you know, what have you heard today that perhaps also resonates for low and middle income countries? And if you haven't heard anything that resonates, uh, where do we need to focus with regard to looking at uh, building biodiversity and, and resilience also in perhaps less uh, intensive farming systems? <laughs> Thank you very much, Charlotte, and um, really interesting discussions here today, and I'm very pleased to be part of it. Um, 
my contribution will be rather like on small holder farmers in sub-Saharan Africa. That doesn't mean that we do not have large farms in Africa, it, it, but nonetheless, most of the foods are still produced on um, the small farms. And that immediately also points towards like the, uh, a critical point here that farms are still getting smaller and smaller being divided between the children. So that, that's a reality of um, the types of experiences that I would like to share today. Um, there's a whole bunch of similarities, uh, but obviously also a lot of like, things that we need to take into account in the smallholder context of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but I would like to center my answer around four main points, but I, I could probably speak for hours. Um, first of all, like the behavior of the farmers in sub-Saharan Africa, even if they are smallholders, is not very different from, from Europe or the US in terms of, they are also looking at uh, costs, risks, etc., versus the benefits that, that, that they will obtain from adopting different technologies, whether it is adopting biodiversity conservation technologies or, or any other technologies. Um, these factors obviously are also one of the main things that they look at. The, 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 difficulty or the difference here is that we are often dealing with, with farmers that have very low levels of uh, education, hence um, even more the importance of, of sharing information, capacity building, uh, but also building the agency of the farmers, like making sure that they are able to make uh, their own independent decisions, uh, that they are not being trained just in one technology by, for example, one company, but that they have an overview of the full range of technologies, um, that their costs, their benefits, et cetera, et cetera. But also, uh, and it has been said already, like uh, the benefits need to be proven under farmer conditions. Like one of the things that we are experiencing often even still here um, in 2022 is that uh, new varieties are being developed under uh, field stations or under monocropping um, conditions while most of the farmers practice uh, intercropping here in Africa. So, so taking that into account is, is, is very, very important. Uh, my second point would turn around the accessibilities to, to schemes or programs and policies, whatever. Um, obviously, uh, we are in a world where, where, where the information streams are not that fast or, or easy, accessible. Um, think about internet and other stuff. So it, it, it is an extra mile for farmers to get aware about any potential schemes, thinking about payments for ecosystem services or anything. So, so it is um, a little bit harder here. If they are already aware, there's another number of blocking factors. So I've been working with farmers here. He, he, they, they were about to make a very interesting deal, but they didn't know how to open a bank account or they were shy to open a bank account. So some, some people need a, a little bit extra effort in, into guiding up till the last step, if you want. And, and that, that's very important that we look at the agency, um, that we train them also in, 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 in certain social skills uh, um, entrepreneurship, business skills, but also like um, negotiation skills, etc. Um, as as already being said, these schemes need to be as simple as possible, tested under field conditions, and 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 the benefits obviously 
proven under field conditions. Um, then my third point would be um, I, somewhere in the report, I've been reading that, that I think it was in the farmer interviews, that it would be important to take into account like um, or, or to work with the farmers when we develop certain policies. And I would say even in Africa, when we develop certain technologies, it's very important that we like co-create um, uh, with the farmers, um, a number of technologies. I've already been talking about uh, monocropping versus intercropping, etc. We really need to better understand the conditions. I've worked for a long time in the Congo. I've seen many people coming into the country. Um, I was living with the farmers for two years when I was still very, very young. But but all these technology people came in, tried to distribute technologies. Nobody would listen to the farmers. They would all go home, come back a year later and say, oh, they haven't adopted, they are lazy. So, but the, I was living with those farmers and I could clearly see why they would not adopt or why they would think, do things differently because they had very uh, good reasons for doing what they were doing. So, uh, building agency, integrating local knowledge, very important. It will also help to make the adoption of these technologies more sustainable, even beyond project end, because they are really convinced that this is the way to go, etc., etc. Uh, rather than like blindly pushing technologies for which we do not really know whether this is the best fit or not. Um, and can you can you wrap up with your fourth point? Thank you. Yes, the fourth one is um, about uh, access to seats. Uh, access and the cost to seats. Um, for sure, and uh, modern well, a lot of new technologies have definitely a place in modern Africa. But we should not forget that that the majority of the farmers are still saving and using their own seeds. Uh, here, eighty percent of 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 production is still by seed saving, using for the next season, etc. By doing so, by conserving, experimenting, developing local varieties. Um, these farmers are actually the custodian farmers con conserving our agricultural biodiversity here on the continent. And, and sometimes it's not just about varieties, it are also uh, the minor local or traditional crops that we often do not find in the formal systems. But these farmers have been conserving them, uh, protecting them, and they have uh, they are not only important for their own food sovereignty, nutrition and cultural identity or heritage, but equally they are very important in terms of uh, genetic resources for future breeding right. exercises. So to me, it's very important that looking at the uh, global south is to think about how we can have how we can reap the benefits of like advanced technologies in the formal seed system, but how that can coexist also with the informal system, seed system whereby farmers keep developing land races, local varieties, and how we can conserve that agricultural biodiversity in situ and not lose that opportunity for today as well as for tomorrow's uh, population. So the current global figures to that sense are rather a little bit depressing. Um, we have only nine food plant, plant species that are good for 66% 66, 66 of the world's crop production. While at the same time, we know that about 6,000 plant species have been described at one or another point to be cultivated by the people, and less than 200 are basically globally making major contributions to our foods. And I will stop here. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you very much, Celine. Obviously, we should have a whole seminar um, on what all of this also means for developing countries. So those are great points, and we'll come back to you in the, in the Q&A. 
Um, now we're going to hear um, from the private sector, um, but more importantly, also from the company that has actually funded uh, all of this, um, all of this research. So it's my pleasure to now turn it over to Bearable Hunt. She is the Biodiversity Strategy Director at BioCrop Science. Um, so Bearable, as the funder of this research, uh, which I understand you actually commissioned to inform your own biodiversity strategy, um, it would be great for you to give us a sense of your key priorities um, that you think uh, we need to enable more biodiversity positive cropping systems. Over to you. Thanks, Charlotte. Yeah, for, for us, it's very important to find the right balance between productivity, production and biodiversity. And we, with our strategy, we always have the farmer in focus and we want to generate value for the farmers. So we want to find systems where we can generate a lot of synergies and minimize the trade-offs. Um, and to do that, we focus on three areas. Actually, it's one is soil health. And then the second one is habitats. How can farmers actually benefit also from implementing or preserving habitats on, on their land? And the third one is the crop genetic diversity. So how can maybe a, a higher variety of crops and varieties uh, benefit farmers when they plant them on their fields? And um, yeah, we as Bayer, I mean, in the end, it's always the farmers who have to implement all the practices and measures on their farm. But a company like Bayer can play a role as enabler of those more biodiversity friendly cropping systems. So, and as an enabler, we need to find ways to overcome the main obstacles. We heard today about the um, costs and risks associated with certain biodiversity measures. So how can we do that? One point we also talked about was giving advice, right? Um, we can try to figure out and give advice to farmers, for instance, regarding cover crops when is the best timing to plant cover crops? Uh, what is the best mixture or the best cover crop variety? When should you terminate it? How should you treat it in between? Um, so questions like that and those questions or yeah, can be supported by digital advice as well. We have some digital tools in place that could be supportive there. Um, then regarding, I think the digital space offers a lot of opportunities. Uh, when we look at habitats, um, we can, we look into ways, for instance, how to, or to create so-called return on investment maps on subfield levels. So farmers know, okay, that part of my field is highly profitable, but on another part of the field, I have very low return on invest or even negative. And those areas would be uh, very suitable to be taken out. And maybe we have even subsidy schemes available in that country that um, farmers can increase profitability. And then we can also use digital tools to increase transparency along the value chain. So farmers, in the end, those this transparency can enable more result-based um, subsidy schemes or agri-environmental schemes. 
We can also support by giving incentives. We have our own carbon programs in place where we pay farmers for certain practices or sometimes certain outcomes like cover crops. And I think one very important point is what uh, people also mentioned here in the call, the cropping systems. What we can do is to develop and test those systems. We have some uh, field trials in LATAM in Argentina and Brazil where we test actually a corn, soy, and wheat system, um, including cover crops. And we look then how does the system perform? We look at the economic, but also in the environmental indicators, and we see very positive outcomes. So on, on both dimensions, the economic and the environmental dimension. And of course, we can further engage in research collaborations. We will start for instance, participate in a Euro Horizon 2020 project, um, which will look into the feasibility of modern technologies uh, to enable more results-based um, payment schemes. So actually, well, how can you measure biodiversity in an affordable and scalable way using modern technology? So yeah, these are a few points from, from our perspective. Thanks very much, Bärbel. Um, we're now uh, opening up to all of you. Thanks so much for putting in um, some of your questions into the chat. Uh, do keep them coming. Um, I'm going to turn to um, Adrian, if he's still with us, if he's still in his car, hopefully not driving. Um, and uh, Sergey, you're welcome to come in on this question as well. Um, there's a question about whether some of the activities which have been looked at in this project have actually been able to be implemented in France and Germany because there are EU subsidies uh, in place to, to basically promote those kinds of uh, schemes. Sergey, I see you adjusting your camera. Yeah, I'm happy to jump in uh, first. Um, so, I mean, most of what we did was actually looking at those practices which are already in place. So this is, um, I'm not sure if I can really answer this question well in this regard. I think there are many things which can be done and there are many differences between countries. Um, what I mentioned before is that especially this result-based schemes that were clustered in a few countries within Europe, uh, there are more coming with the new reform of the EU. Uh, but also still clustered in very few countries. So I think this is really something which could take up uh, the wider range of countries also above grasslands. Um, there are some exceptions like in Switzerland, we have here some payments, which also like in vineyards, you get payments if there's a certain amount of species in place. Uh, so there are many tools to adjust this as also different circumstances. And I hope there will be a higher adoption and in, in actual agriculture policy in the future. Great. Adrian, do you want to come in? And then if anybody wants to speak on this from the US perspective, um, I think that would be interesting uh, as well. Go ahead, Adrian. Sorry, Charlotte, I, I lost you there. What, what was the question? My phone uh, went into oblivion. Yeah, the question is essentially, you know, among some of the environmental schemes that are already in place now in, in Europe, how much are they actually being further promoted through subsidy schemes from from the European Union, or in, in, in your case now, the UK? I, I would say a lot of them are being furthered through that. In, in the UK at the moment, carbon auditing is the, is the big thing. And 
it looks like that is going to become part of the policy that in order to receive funds you need to do a carbon audit and then subsequent to that have to carry out uh, actions in order to reduce your carbon and that would therefore enable your subsidy payments as i said before soil health is crucial to to crop health and to crop yields and therefore some of the some of the actions we take like soil testing ph testing we're looking at uh, calcium levels phosphate levels that's all really important although some of the less profitable farmers and the less less business minded farmers haven't been doing this and therefore there again there is uh, there is money being put in by governments in order to do this work which again is it's sort of the carrot and the stick if that makes sense how much of it would be done without these incentives i'm not so sure how much would actually be done because people just don't have the profitability in some instances to be able to uh, for it to be affordable okay does anybody want to jump in from the u.s perspective on on this question um how much are these practices being supported by the regulatory framework that usda for example has has put into place Charlotte, I can I can jump in here. Um, so in the survey, we did ask farmers about the practice they're currently uh, experimenting, implementing. So in the case of U.S., you know where the, the interview farmers came from, uh, Illinois and the state of Iowa. So a cover crop is the number one, almost like almost ninety percent of farmers are doing it, followed by uh, no-till and crop rotation and buffer strips. So, but th these are the you know practices is just pretty popular among farmers in in those two states. Um, with a caution, no, oh, this is a re not representative sample. Uh, great. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Charlotte. Uh, yeah. I, I would say we've we've looked at uh, low minimum till, low till, reduced till, cover crops, and that the the issue certainly in our instance is the reduction in yield wasn't being supported to the equivalent financial losses that you're incurring and therefore it was it, it is and still is very underutilized and until those issues are resolved it will remain underutilized okay that's that's an interesting point so th so thanks both to Wei and, and and adrian for jumping in on that Adrian, your comment on, on no-till uh, not being adopted as fast as it has been over time in, in the US, it maybe relates to a question we've gotten from Eric de la Barrera um, here, um, who's simply wondering what proportion of the non-US maize uh, is genetically modified in, in Europe? It's, it's peanuts, right? Well, so it, it, where I am in Scotland, GM crops are banned. We, we are not allowed to grow them. Our buyers will not buy them off you. So, so for us, absolutely zero is produced through GM. Uh, we, as farmers, we would like to see that change because we, we believe we can reduce our chemical inputs. It would therefore improve environmental credentials, et cetera, et cetera. To the UK population, 
they are seen as the devil and they don't want they don't, they would they just don't want anything to do with it and we are banned from growing uh, gm crops uh yeah thank you although I, I think it is important to point out that that europe actually imports uh quite a bit of uh of gm crops um for for example animal feed um because there is no labeling as far as i understand for for those imports um let's ask fernando the same question how does it look uh, on the gm front for you in in brazil certainly wider adoption um as far as i know yeah, I think most of the production is is uh, is GM anyway, and uh, well, it depends on the market. There are uh, niche markets for certified non-GM soy and uh, uh, even organic production. Or you know, the, our concern is that the segregation schemes and it goes the same for the you know, the, the deforestation regulations that the EU is proposing, for example, uh, related to imported deforestation, that segregation schemes will always make products more expensive. And at the end, the uh, penalized are, are the consumers and uh, um, it may not have the desired effect on the conservation of uh, biodiversity as uh, we would think have. So we are thinking of how, you know, disseminate the good practices and to improve the efficiency on the land use as, or, uh, as alternatives to reduce the risk that the companies have in importing products from uh, thanks, thanks, Fernando. Again, a, a very important topic also, of course, in the context of, of biodiversity. Um, let me pose this next question to Mariam because it relates to the, the, the practices. Um, uh, Nigat Abebe is asking what analytical methodology was used in this report. Um, wondering a little bit about, you know, intercropping is certainly not a new um, uh, practice. It's been around for a long time as a pest management technique. So maybe you want to speak to that. And then there's another question on intercropping from uh, Alfred Nomarillo. Um, is the local traditional knowledge included in the intercropping research? Um, yeah, our approach for uh, assessment of the effect of cover cropping uh, on soil health was mostly uh, systematic review and for the intercropping effects uh, was meta-analysis. For um, so all we need um, is that um, we need the uh, field experiment studied and reported enough uh, quantitative data. Uh, so we extracted all the uh, data and uh, did our meta-analysis on the effect of intercropping on um, pest management. Um, because I saw um, a question regarding the application of uh, intercropping in Pakistan. Uh, yeah, we, we didn't uh, do a, meta, a field experiments. So our approach was mostly literature review based on meta-analysis and systematic review. Great, thanks, uh, Mariam, also for, for looking at that additional question. Um, 
so somebody, I, I don't have a name, but somebody's asking a really very interesting question. What is the role of trade and transport systems when we look at, um, at resilience and, and biodiversity? Does anybody of you want to take that? Maybe um, that's a good question for you, um, Jabul at, at ETH. Can you say that again? You, you cut out. I've got a really bad connection here. Yeah, the question is whether a, a project like this should also look at trade and transport, not just at, at what's happening uh, on, on the farm. Well, yes. I mean, in a, in a world of unlimited resources, of course, there's all <laughs> kinds of things we could be looking at additionally. I mean, it depends what our interest in. I think the focus of the project was really on soil health. Um, mostly in the role of biodiversity and 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 farm management and landscape management aspects in terms of promoting that. I mean, if we're looking at a whole system perspective where uh, we're taking account of um, energy use, carbon emissions, uh, various uh, potential uh, pollutants such as nitrates and so on, um, together with biodiversity, then yeah, we'd have to look at the whole management system, um, including uh, trade flows. I mean, it's interesting to consider that um, increasing demand of uh, for food and other resources from from landscapes can have very substantial knock-on effects that we're not immediately aware of at the farm or landscape level. I mean, we see this a lot in forestry with the growth in um, demand for timber it has all kinds of knock-on effects uh, at multiple scales. And and again, a really comprehensive analysis would go well beyond what we were able to do in this project, but certainly would be valuable. Yeah, no, thank you very much. Agree, it's important, but a bit beyond the scope of this uh, the, the, this study for now. Um, Pedro, you have your hand up. Please introduce yourself, and, and um, I, I assume you want to come in on this question. Yeah, just a, a short comment. I'm Pedro Brancalhão from University of São Paulo, Brazil. And yeah, I, I believe it's a critical issue because Many of the like the biodiversity conservation practices, they are a consequence of market demands. So the farmers they respond to demands that external, uh, you know, players uh, influence on them. So for instance, there there is a very nice science paper. The title is "The Rotting Apples of Brazilian Agribusiness," in which researchers they mapped the flow of soybeans, maize, and other crops produced in, in areas of illegal deforestation. So it was possible to map the main countries and companies buying illegal agricultural crops from Brazil. So I think it's important to link in a, in a future project, the market supporting and, and buying the products coming from different productive systems, including the ones like pressing native ecosystems and not using sustainable practices and those that adopt more biodiversity conservation practices. Uh, thanks for coming in on that. Uh, Jin and then Fernando, also on, on this uh, point, which has uh, struck some interest here. Thank you, Charlotte. Um, so I, I just want to quickly comment that uh, uh, the, the role of trade is certainly very important, and that's also uh, the, one of the major motivations for us to develop this framework, considering the impact of the implementing the uh, uh, agricultural practice, not only on the biodiversity um, on a certain farm, but also the, the implications 
for the biodiversity uh, challenges that w goes beyond uh, the farm for the landscape and also even for the distant world. Um, and uh, another in interesting point that I want to um, point out is that besides this uh, environmental, um, potential environmental impacts uh, that um, kind of interlinked by, by trade, uh, there, there's, um, there's also an interesting um, impact that need, need to be further um, investigated or looked at um, um, by trade, which is uh, like along the, the, the long supply chain of the trade network, who got the most benefits. Uh, and uh, there has been a lot of uh, um, trade-driven uh, agricultural development in the global south, uh, developing countries. Um, and uh, um, that has caused a lot of uh, um, biodiversity loss. Um, and uh, typically, um, um, there, there's uh, the, the, how much the local farmers get out from, say, producing coffee in the, in the in the in, in the in, in the developing countries. Um, it's only a very small share of the profit uh, for the whole uh, supply chain. And uh, uh, it, it's it, I think it's some kind of important discussions need to happen in terms of um, for the, the whole international trade network, uh, what's the cost and benefits for the environment and also for the, the, the benefits for the, uh, the, the well-being of smallholder farmers in the developing countries. Yeah, thanks for highlighting all those point, uh, points. Fernando, do you want to come back in on the Brazilian um, situation here? Well, yeah, um, my point is that if these practices from the farmers, uh, if they have an effect on climate or biodiversity, we have to give value to this. And this can come, you know, the farmers are reducing emissions, they can have carbon credits that they will put in the market. Or another possibility is that we can attach that impact on the commodities trade. So we are talking about exporting, you know, low carbon or carbon neutral beef or soy or any other products. And, but we have to create the demand for that. And I, I think that's the role for trade, you know, to privilege or to value. Uh, and we are seeing this from the market. Companies looking for commodities with a lower impact or a positive impact on the climate and biodiversity. And this is our vision for the future is that not only we'll be exporting beef and soy and cotton, but beef and soy attached to the impact on carbon or biodiversity. Yeah, so, so the demand pool can be, can have a perhaps negative environmental outcomes, but could also uh, have positive environmental outcomes. I, I think that's a, that's a great point. So let me, in, in the, the last couple of questions, why don't we focus on the developing world again? Um, because both IFPRI and ETH do work also very much uh, on, on developing countries. Um, maybe one question for Celine and then one for you, Wei, um, from IFPRI. So Celine, a question here is, and, and I think you actually started to speak to this in your remarks. This is from Petambar Dalal. Um, can 
how, how can we minimize crop biodiversity loss in developing countries by enabling smallholders to preserve local germplasms? Uh, you, you address this somewhat, but maybe you want to speak in particular about the need to preserve local germplasms. Sure, thank you very much. Exactly, this was my last point. Um, so um, to me, the, the issue would be like to really figure out how informal seed systems where farmers continue to experience, experiment, develop, preserve uh, that local biodiversity. Because um, as I said, 80% of the farmers are just using seeds from the previous seasons, et cetera, et cetera. That doesn't mean that we do not want them to reap the benefits from the formal seed system and, and, and from uh, advanced technologies, but we need to figure out how they can keep also working with their uh, local varieties. Um, there's a lot of entry points. They are definitely important for their own food sovereignty, for their own nutrition, diversifying nutrition. A lot of like wild foods or underutilized foods really contribute a lot in terms of diversifying otherwise very monotonous diets in, in the global south. But practically, a number of activities that we are implementing here um, in, 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 in Africa, but also elsewhere in the world, or for example, community seed banks, whereby farmer groups are really trained into uh, how to organize themselves, how to set up a community seed bank, how to actually go out, collect their own um, we work, for example, here with local varieties of, of indigenous leafy vegetables. Um, we started with like 30 varieties. At some point, we brought in also the National Gene Bank of Kenya to come and have a look. And they added, like they found another 30 local local varieties of traditional leafy vegetables. We are training the farmers on how to document their own varieties, um, how to exchange their own varieties, obviously how to manage the community seed bank and 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 um we really see that it brings a lot of like uh interest of the farmers themselves as well the thing is that for these indigenous vegetables the seeds are not even available in the formal system because it's not like the focus of of you find maize you find beans you find uh kales and cabbages but for these local very very local varieties the seeds are not available back in the 90s there has been also like when we first started working on traditional leafy vegetables there's been a lot of effort also in 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 consumer education, uh, large campaigns, public uh, sector media, etc., etc. So nowadays in Kenya, we can find five to six of those uh, traditional leafy vegetables in the supermarket. Consumers really like them. They attach them also with uh, being organic. They attach them with their own cultural identity, etc. So st something starts moving here by really valorizing that local um, those local genetic resources. And to me, going forward, we it, it's important that we keep that aspect. It's kind of in situ conservation when, when farmers keep experimenting with these local varieties. But at the same time, uh, we do not want to stop them from also benefiting from advanced technologies. So we have to figure out how these two systems basically could um, coexist. Um, and yeah, as I already said, a lot of work going on with community seed banks, also national seed bank, et cetera, to conserve in situ as well as ex situ in the national gene bank. Thanks very much, Celine. And, and Wei, maybe you can take this question when you, uh, when you close us off today. I mean, there's a couple of questions here about IFPRI's work. And, and let me just tell everybody in the audience, all IFPRI does is focus really usually on, on low and, and middle income countries uh, research. 
Um, but there are questions here about since the farmers in, in developing countries are just as concerned with climate change or, or biodiversity as, as farmers everywhere else is what kind of work is being done by IFRI in this regard. And also um, with regard to the technologies that, that have been looked at in, as part of this research project, the question is, is there any research done with regard to their uh, feasibility, applicability in developing countries? But Wei, maybe you can answer that also in your, in your closing remarks, because we are nearing the end of our, um, of our very interesting seminar. Um, so let me first turn to uh, Jin Zheng, who will give us some uh, closing reflections on the discussions today, and then we'll hear from, from Wei after that. Uh, Jin, over to you. Thank you, Charlotte. Uh, it's my uh, great honor to uh, provide my two cents at the end. Uh, so I just want to emphasize that, uh, so today we have heard a lot about the, the agricultural practice, and it is important to uh, implement those uh, biodiversity enhancing uh, ag practice on farm, um, but it's but besides this, it's also very important to um, uh, look beyond farms and uh, recognize that uh, what being produced on farm and how it being produced is really determined by what we put on our plate and what we put in our uh, gas tank. Um, so the stakeholders along the supply chains uh, for food and biofuels are also critical uh, for to be involved in the future conversations. And as a consumer, uh, while we are enjoying all the benefits that brought, brought by the modern uh, food system and the fuel system uh, and pushing for more um, uh, bioenergy productions, we also need to be more mindful of the implications and particularly the impacts on the environment and farmers' livelihood uh, in the global south. So that's um, my two cents. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Wei. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Uh, thank you, Xin, for the closing remarks. So uh, yes, I, 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 I think enhancing biodiversity and resilient and healthy ecosystem services in developing countries is a food security strategy. So the, the, this is not a necessarily a trade-off. Um, we know that over one-third of African soils are degraded, significantly limiting farmers' ability to grow, to feed themselves, uh, and feed the future population. So, so uh, you know, IFRI has done a lot of work. We, we don't, uh, yeah, have two hours to talk about that, but we work on policies to uh, addressing uh, inefficient or blanket subsidies on chemical inputs, to think of ways to be more targeted, to support uh, more precise, optimal use of chemical fertilizers to, to address the, the soil health issue. And we work on innovative um, uh, extension, learning, and climate adaptation, uh, po natural positive solutions to, to food security and, and farming systems. And uh, commons, for example, uh, is great natural resource management, not just for livelihoods and, and, and cultural heritage connection to places, but um, they, have, they play a significant role in enhancing uh, biodiversity on landscapes, which supports healthy, um, health, healthy ecosystems for the sustainable uh, food security objectives. So, with, with that, let me let me just say a, a give a few notes of thanks. Uh, thank I'd like to thank all presenters and 
panelists and an audience for these excellent uh, discussions and uh, enlightening remarks. Uh, thank the project team members for your contribution to the research and um, their team for funding the work and all the constructive engagement throughout the project. Do reach out to us if you want to learn more about the, the report, uh, which is accessible from the event page. And finally, special thanks to the IFPRI communication and event team for their uh, seamless support. Um, thank you very much. Back to you, Charlotte. Thank you so much, Wei. A warm uh, thanks from me as well to all the speakers, to our audience. Thank you for all your questions. And if, if the speakers would like to answer any of the remaining questions in writing, that would be, I'm sure, much appreciated. And in closing, let me just uh, tell you about two events that are coming up at IFPRI. Um, December 12th, uh, we have a um, the annual foreman lecture on nutrition, and we are very pleased uh, that the African Union Commissioner for Health, Humanitarian Affairs, and Social Development will be joining us and delivering a speech on um, the African Union designated uh, 19, uh, 2022 to be the year of nutrition in Africa. So please join us for that lecture. And then on the 14th, we have another seminar, which is actually relevant very much to the topic uh, discussed today. And that is about the harmful environmental impacts of agricultural subsidies um, within the topic of repurposing subsidies. So many thanks, have a great rest of your day, wherever you may be or evening, and we look forward to seeing you at another event.